Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and a celebratory July 4th to you. I hope that your barbecue is full of sizzle and smoke and that you are celebrating with family and friends, enjoying something al fresco as we all branch out just a little bit. I am no doubt in the mood for fireworks. I can't wait. I hope that you stay healthy and well and safe and that your meals are utterly delicious. But don't touch your dial because I hope to add to those fabulous flavors. In fact, you have tuned in to the coolest culinary conversation on the radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and the delicious conversation starts right here and right now. So I welcome you to my kitchen. Whether you love to cook or love to eat, I like to say we can definitely be friends, and you are bound to find something you'll love on this show. You can always visit chefjamie.com for my features, forums, recipes, and cooking videos. You can catch my shameless daily dish on social at Chef Jamie Gwen, and you can take your cooking skills, your culinary knowledge, rather, and find some delicious inspiration to the next level, of course, just by staying tuned. I'm delivering the world of food directly to your radio every weekend, so let's get this party started, shall we? Coming up, I am delighted beyond to tell you that Carolyn Phillips is here. She is the author, the scholar, the food writer, the artist, the uh, fluent Mandarin speaker, the author of the James Beard nominated All Under Heaven. If you don't know it, it was the first English language cookbook to examine all 35 cuisines of China. And her story is extraordinary. Shared in a new memoir, part memoir, part cookbook, in fact, all about her journey as a white American born in Hawaii and assimilating to the Chinese culture. It's really quite fabulous when you find a food novel that you love, right? And she is quite uh, a distinguished author and speaker. And so I am over the moon that she is joining us this hour to share her story. But first... I kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And summer corn is such a lovely thing, don't you think? Whether you grill it or steam it or eat it right off the cob, just don't miss out on the sweet summer crop of corn because nothing says summer quite like corn on the cob. Maybe it's because of the vegetable's climatic roots. You know, scientists believe that the people of central Mexico developed corn from a wild grass, which happened about 7,000 years ago. It's also known as maize, and corn eventually spread north to the southwestern U.S. and south to Peru. And Columbus is said to have acquired corn from Indians in America and brought it back to Spain. Now, from there, it spread to Western Europe and in time to the rest of the world. And corn is now actually grown on every continent except Antarctica. 
There's a little bit of culinary history for you. And what food is more synonymous with summer than freshly picked corn on the cob? Now, I happen to love the host of different varieties that are available today. You can get an array of colors. You can find red and pink, black, even purple. Uh, Although when it comes to choosing between yellow and white, I always choose white. I tend to find it slightly sweeter and I have a secret to enhancing that sweetness. So stay tuned. Just for fun though, before you bite into that corn on the cob at your next barbecue, let's take a closer look. So the average ear of corn has 800 kernels that are arranged in 16 rows, and there is one strand of silk for each kernel. Who knew, right? That's what I call really good dinner party conversation. 800 kernels, 16 rows, and one strand of silk for each kernel. But there are lots of wonderful ways to eating corn straight from the cob as well. So let's start with freshly made cream corn. Oh yes, you throw some fresh kernels into a pan with copious amounts of good butter. And after a little while, you add some heavy cream and some seasoning and you heat it through and then you eat it with a spoon out of the pot. It's so good. To easily take the kernels off the cob, here's my best chef's tip. You want to stand the corn on the cob upright in a bowl and use a paring knife to cut down along the kernels as close to the cob as you can so you get all the goodness. Now, you can also line a cutting board with a kitchen towel and cut the kernels off. The tip there is that the towel acts as a a buffer, rather, to keep the kernels from flying around. And if you want really complete yield, after you've removed the kernels, you use the back of your chef's knife to scrape the corn cobs of what is called the corn milk. That milky liquid that you extract from the cob is a really beautiful addition to corn soup or chowder. And then if you really want to go to the ultimate, um, you know, uh, waste not, want not, then you boil the cobs after you've taken the corn off the cobs, of course, um, for added flavor in your soup. Or you can even throw them into a pot of water. And in about 10 minutes, you have what is corn stock. And if you eat vegetarian, well, then it's far more flavorful than water next time you make a dish that calls for it. Now, you have the kernels. You've cut them off. What else can you make? How about a corn and avocado salsa for grilled salmon? Oh, Or how about a tomato and corn salsa for dipping chips into? Scallops, shrimp, crab, lobster, they all pair well with corn, whether it's a summer salad or a clam bake. Um, I do love a corn soup, and I like it hot or cold, alongside an arugula salad, perfect meatless Monday vegetarian meal. Uh, Lobster and corn chowder, even better. Uh, Coconut is a crazy great flavor complement to corn as well, so you could always make a corn and coconut milk soup and serve it in a little espresso cup for a cocktail party. How about corn and cheddar biscuits? Oh, yes. If you happen to just be boiling uh, corn on the cob or ears of corn to serve that way, here's my best secret. That is, you want to salt the water the way that you would for pasta so that it's really briny and salty to the, t- you know, to the taste. And then I always throw in um, a, a tablespoon or two of granulated sugar. Even if the corn is super sweet peak of the season, I find that the sugar in the water brings out the sugar in the corn. And be sure not to boil it too long. I still like the corn to have texture when it comes out from the boiling water. But most of all, 
I love grilled corn. The flavor is incomparable, right? The smoky goodness, a little bit of char. The corn cooks just enough that you still get that crisp tender when it comes to the texture. But my secret, lots of secrets today, right? Is a coating of mayonnaise on the corn cobs to lock in moisture. Now don't knock it till you try it. So you can grill corn in the husk where it actually steams itself and you sort of get the bonus of smoky flavor from the grill as a subtlety and you get a neat built-in handle because when you fold back the husk or pull it back to reveal the steamed corn, um, then you can tie it and there's something to hold on to. And I'll usually add a compound butter that melts nicely there and that eliminates the need to roll the cob in butter after cooking. I make a Parmesan basil butter. I love the the salty parm and the herbaceous fresh flavor of basil that combine perfectly. And it's really simple to make. You take a stick of butter and you soften it and you mash it together with uh, some grated Parmesan cheese, some finely chopped basil, salt, pepper. You could throw in any seasonings that you like. And then you can even keep it at room temperature or you can form it into a log and refrigerate it and then slice it or just rub it all over that hot corn, whether it comes out of the pot or straight from the grill. But if you have already cleaned your corn cobs, your, uh, you know, corn on the cob, I should say, I like to run it under the faucet so that there's some moisture to it when it goes on the grill, which actually does aid in the steaming process. And then about... I don't know, a few minutes, four or five later, just as the corn's beginning to cook, I give it that coating of mayonnaise, which locks in the moisture and actually gives you some really beautiful caramelization. And by the time the corn is charred in some places and hot throughout, you have the absolute perfect grilled corn. And I do have lots of recipes galore for the summer season to savor the sweet essence of fresh corn at its peak. So please check out chefjamie.com where they are all posted and let me know what you make and how delicious the sweet summer corn where you live is. Stay tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more fabulous food right after this. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Feeding Your Soul. I love food novels, as I call them, uh, stories that capture your attention that are centered around food and culture. And At the Chinese Table is just that. It's captivating and an absolutely scrumptious read. In a beautiful mixture of memoir and family biography and cookbook and travel log, Carolyn Phillips is sharing her knowledge of Chinese cuisine, even though she is not Chinese. She is a well-penned author, a white American, in fact, from Hawaii originally, who moved to Taiwan in 1976 to explore and learn Mandarin. She fell in love with a Chinese man, and well, the rest is her 
story. Her story is the absolutely, as I mentioned, captivating, beautiful new release called At the Chinese Table. To note, it's an editor's pick on Amazon. And Carolyn is a food writer, a scholar, an artist, a fluent Mandarin speaker, and the author of the James Beard nominated All Under Heaven, the first English language cookbook that examined all 35 cuisines of China. I am so delighted that Madam Wong, as we call her from the popular blog, has joined us to sit down and dish. And Carolyn, what a beautiful read your story is. Uh, the book is is extraordinary. Congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, all right. You've written previous books on your uh, expertise, your knowledge, the fact that you uh, immersed yourself in Chinese food and culture. But start at the beginning for us, if you would. Lay the groundwork of your journey for my listeners. Well, when I graduated from uh, the university, or actually I didn't graduate, I left the University of Hawaii a couple of courses short because I was just bored and uh, <laughs> at, at, at loose end. And um, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I saw this... Uh, little advertisement on the college uh, bulletin board uh, saying that there was a study available in either Taipei or, or Tokyo, and I applied for both because uh, I had studied both Chinese and Japanese, and I ended up in Taiwan. Hmm. And This was in 1976. Right, a, lo- a long time ago. And you landed there thinking that you would spend some time, immerse yourself in the culture, and go back home? Yes, I stopped it. The deal was that you landed in a foreign country, you hung up for a year or so, and you'd come back fluent. Right. <laughs> I just don't know where I got this idea. <laughs> but I was sure that this would happen, so I figured uh, my next step would probably become the next Dan Rather. I'd be roaming the world, going to the world's hotspots and reporting for CBS, you know? Sure. And that didn't happen. <laughs> and not exactly that way. But I wonder in 1976, if you can recall uh, your first culinary experience that really stood out, because that has been what has been your infamy. I mean, that that is what has made you and your writing and your uh, scholarly knowledge so beautifully beneficial to so many of us. I've followed you for a long time. Well, thank you. Do you remember, do you remember that? Well, thank you. Do you remember that, that meal or that experience or the first person that exposed you to cuisine there where it, it, it really embedded in your, in your mind, your heart, your passion? Well, I had been wandering around the city, um, going to classes and so forth for a couple of weeks, and somebody had told me about this little dive uh, hmm. that sold Sichuanese food, street food. And I went there, and it was very gruff. The, the raiders were older soldiers, um, and I didn't know how to read the menu on the wall. I didn't know what to eat, but it smelled divine. Oh, yes. And so I pointed at what the guys at the next table were eating, and I said, you know, I want that. And it turned out to be this most incredible food I'd ever eaten. Hmm. Uh, there were noodles, dandan noodles. The time when dandan noodles were unknown, sure. pretty much anywhere else out of Tangdu. And uh, also a little basket of steamed uh, pork ribs that had been coated in uh, a, a marinade and then rice crumbs and steamed for hours over sweet potatoes. Oh. And so it was 
textures and flavors just bombarding my little brain. And I went back there again and again and again, and I couldn't figure out what the deal was with the waiters because they were so cranky. <laughs> they would uh, yell at wrath at the kitchen, my order. Uh, they would slam things on the table. They couldn't wait for me to get out of there. And it wasn't personal. They were doing that to everybody. And so I asked one of my teachers, what's going on with these guys? And she said that because the Civil War had ended in 1949, and this was uh, 1976, these men had been cut off from their families for, what was it, 25 years or oh, more. Oh, wow. And uh, they didn't have any family here. Uh, the only friends they had were people, probably a fellow soldiers who had left the Chiang Kai-shek after the fall of Chinese communists. And uh, they couldn't get a job anywhere else. They only spoke really Sichuanese dialect. And so they were trapped in this existence that was not of their making. They, they were in limbo. They couldn't mm -hmm. earn enough money to have a new wife and children. Uh, they had to be lonely bachelors for the rest of their lives, just barely subsisting. And that opened up a window into Chinese history and culture to me. I hadn't realized really what was going on. I was 21, you know, I was totally vague on the world. Hmm. Uh, and I began to study Chinese history and figure out what was going on. And it was the food that opened up the door to me. Of to course. Everything about China. Of course. And so how many years did you spend there? At, at what point did you meet the boy that would become your husband? <laughs> <laughs> I spent a total of about eight years there. Wow. Um, and I met the boy uh, my first day. Uh, he was the first person I met. And you think I'm a really... I'm a pushover. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it makes us all believe in love at first sight a little bit. I like that. Well, no, we hated each other at first sight. It was like the, it was a re like a really bad early 1980s movie. <laughs> um, we absolutely loathed each other. I'm. Um, I thought he was an arrogant so and so, and he thought I was a ditzy American that I another one that he had to deal with because he was an administrator at a language school. Oh. Uh, he's Chinese. His parents were from the mainland. Yes, and. Um, he really didn't like Americans much at that point because we were just, you know, a bunch of, we were acting like teenagers, really. We were all in our early 20s, but, you know, brainless. <laughs> and uh, he had to deal with us. And he didn't like me. I didn't like him. And we figured we'd never see each other again when he left for Long Beach because he had gotten a green card uh, through his family. And so it uh, went over to Long Beach. And I believe I'd never see him again. Uh, but but you did. I, I, I don't want to jump there yet, though, because there's so much beautiful history in the eight years that you spent and really what has paved the way for you to teach about Chinese food and culture. You experience Chinese cuisine extraordinarily. In China, much like in India or Mexico or any place with a really uh, old and very uh, layered food culture, the best chefs live in the homes of the wealthy. Right. Uh, they're the ones that can afford them and that can uh, really patronize their great cooking. Oh, Carolyn, if you would please pause there, but stay with us. There's so much more to learn about your extraordinary journey. More with Carolyn Phillips, food writer and scholar, when we come back.
We're back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio at the Chinese table. The new captivating and scrumptious read from Carolyn Phillips is on the table, in fact, and she is here waxing poetic. When we refer to, oh, I went out for Chinese food, in my family, that means Cantonese, right? That's what I was raised with. But, uh, but there are so many extraordinary different regional cuisines, 35 cuisines of China, uh, that one needs to specify, right, to honor that culture, those ingredients, that art. Of all of them, though, and I know it's like asking your favorite child, do you have a favorite? Oh, gosh, it depends on what I've just eaten last night. (laughs) I probably like the food of Jiangsu, Zhejiang, that area, which is the the uh, the provinces that surround Shanghai. Okay. Uh, this is a really rich delta region with lots of freshwater fish. Mm. Um, it's a very wonderful climate there. It's very even and uh, tends to be mild rather than scorching. Yes. Uh, and the food there, you, I mean, this is the place where they create the great soaking rice wines that are like sherry, ah, but yes. much more fabled. Yes. And uh, the great uh, Jinhua hams uh, that are uh, dry-cured, hmm. uh, mushrooms, fresh bamboo shoots, uh, aquatic animals. It's just uh, the pigs there. Oh, my gosh. And it's all traditionally where all these things were created, the great soy sauces. And this is what these chefs had brought with them to Taiwan, this is appreciation for great ingredients. It's sort of like if you had uh, the great chefs of France. They moved to Corsica, hmm. and they brought all their great ingredients with them. And then all these great ingredients and all this great knowledge and disappeared in France. You could see the kind of like the the problem there. Sure, because everything is just concentrated in one place. Where and then everybody thinks of France. They think of the foods that have deteriorated. They don't have this great depth and knowledge behind them. Hmm. Uh, it's so fascinating to me. That you have dug so deeply into the, the root of the culture and the food. I wonder, uh, living in America now, and for some time, right, how has mm-hmm. Chinese cuisine in America elevated over the years, by your palate's oh, opinion? We came back in 1985. Uh, there really was only Cantonese food and Chinese-American food. Uh, you couldn't get the ingredients you wanted. Uh, and that is sort of the reason why I wrote All Under Heaven, um, mm-hmm. my first really big book. Yes. Because I was trying to create the ingredients that we needed in order to create the food. Hmm. So it was like, uh, you know, I have to make the adobe bricks before you can build the house. Right. <laughs> and so I was learning to True. make all these ingredients. And uh, my house was just turned into like this, you know, mad scientist lab. I had fizzing pots everywhere, <laughs> uh, dried fish in the refrigerator. Uh, it was just, it was just, fermentations yes of course yeah and then we slowly kind of were able to create the foods that we wanted but finding them in the market was impossible Mm. until probably the 90s when we had more people moving from mainland china to the united states like when monterey park and i think Gabriel valley started to take off yes those areas of course and today they are so readily available, those ingredients. I love that gochujang is in the grocery store. 
I, I really do. I, I think that everything is so very accessible. Um, I happen to love in your book as well that the recipes are strewn throughout the prose because just when you get to that moment where I can't wait to read what happens next, you drop in a recipe for Taiwanese fried pork chops. <laughs> and now I'm salivating, right? Now I'm drooling on the pages. And um, I, I, I want to talk recipes with you before I let you go. So if you would, um, l- let's touch on a few. Because these ingredients are all readily available, regular Chinese soy sauce and five spice powder are in my pantry. Um, this, this pork chop is, is very simple, um, but full of, of depth and umami and flavor. Right, right, right. It's very simple. It really is. You just take a uh, pork chop, a boneless pork chop. If it's thick, you cut it horizontally in half and then smack it with the back of your cleaver, not the, not the sharp side, but the back side, until it flattens out, kind of like what you would do with a veal cutlet. Yeah, to tenderize, um, to tenderize and thin out, right? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And then it's a quick marinade with a, the with a soy sauce. And be sure, if you are making Chinese, any kind of a Chinese uh, dish, is that you're using Chinese soy sauce. Don't use uh, Kiko Man or any Japanese soy sauce because while those are good, uh, those are for Japanese cooking, and the flavor is very, very different. Right. They're saltier and they're lighter than the Chinese ones, which are much richer. Yes, oh, th- um, most certainly. That makes me think of um, black vinegar, Carolyn, right. which is my addiction, just so you know. I, <laughs> there is no better vinegar than that. It is seriously my addiction, and I... I spend good money for it because I think the aged black vinegar, the Chinese black vinegar, there's nothing better. Yeah, right. It's very good. It's like a, if you get the really good ones, they're like uh, almost a, like the Modena kind of basalmet. Yes, they have a subtle sweetness to them for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely so. And then you simply season with this marinade, the pork chop, and you, uh, you fry it. It's, it's the, the starch, the sweet potato starch. That makes all the difference, right? Absolutely. You, you, uh, you dust them very thickly with the starch, getting every nook and cranny, and then deep mm. fry them. Mm. And you'll have this incredibly crunchy, I don't know how, it's like a, it's just like a pork-flavored wafer. Oh. And it's fantastic by itself on rice in a sandwich. It, it, I'm oh. like, I don't know why. In a sandwich. Yes. like pork chop stands everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we did. <laughs> I wish we oh, did. Yeah, they put most places the same. On on your travels back, is is street food uh, is street food back? Has it has it come back in the ways that we used to know it and love it? As an aside, I wonder. Yes, in Taiwan. In Taiwan, no, things have disappeared. Uh, a lot of the problem is that the older generations that came over from the different uh, provinces and cities in, in the mainland they have passed on. Um, and the culture has, uh, well, it's accepted things like Sichuanese hot pot, things like that, that are fun the children, you know, they, um, I think of the children, young people like. Um, you don't have the elegant uh, restaurants anymore. Hmm. Uh, you don't have the, the great hawker food that we used to have when I was uh, there. We, hmm. I mean, I would wake up in the morning and I would hear the lady selling the tofu um, custard. Oh, it's it just, it just a coagulated soy milk, but very, very rich. Yes, and it was served, served like as a, a syrup made out of um, brown sugar and uh, ginger strips and some fresh, freshly boiled peanuts. 
oh. things like that, or rice tamales, or uh, mm. buns, fresh buns. Oh, beautiful for breakfast. Oh. Speaking of peanuts, oh, I will right. make your strange flavored peanuts first from the book. Okay. And I can't wait because just the name, as you mentioned, as you allude to alone, how could you not want to make strange flavored peanuts? It's actually a, a Szechuanese term, right? Quite wait. Quite wait means anything that has like, a, like an odd combination of uh, herbs and spices. And this one does, but it just, it, it'll blow your mind away because it's not, um, it's not going to salt on your taste buds. It's like this wonderful layer of herbs and spices. Uh, like citronese, peppercorns, cumin, uh, and so forth, that robe the, the peanut, and then you have the, the a shell, like a sugary shell around it. Yes. It's totally addictive. Oh, my. I can't wait. And then I think I will follow that with what are your famous Chinese-style almond cookies. You know, my mom, my mom has always loved uh, the almond cookie at the end of a Cantonese meal. And even my cookie, I remember, I always would hand her the almond and eat, you know, after I had oh. eaten around it. Um, because oh. the, the crumb of the cookie was just my favorite part. It still is. Oh, yeah. And I love the, the old-style Chinese-American way of cooking. And um, <laughs> bakeries there were a big part of my life when I was a kid. Because I grew up uh, south of San Francisco in Silicon Valley. And so... Once in a while, a big treat was to go to San Francisco, and an even bigger treat was to go to Chinatown. Oh. And I would clamor for these. Yes. This is just like sugary nirvana for me. And the, the memories are indelible. They are. Uh, talk about, if you would, briefly, how you acclimated to become a part of J.H.'s family, the boy. For a long time, I wasn't. Um, they were hoping that I would finally get the hint and run away. Right. Because uh, <laughs> they really didn't want me. Because uh, I'm 100% white. But um, I did work my way into their favor uh, by feeding my mother-in-law food that she hadn't had for 40 years, like these uh, chestnut symbols. I would take dried chestnuts and soak them, pound them, and then make them into a, uh, a, like, a like a batter almost and form them into symbols and steam them. Oh, wow. And that really broke the ice with her because mm. it was really feeding her soul. For sure. Uh, that's stuff she hadn't had since she was a child. We'll take a quick break, but Carolyn, you're making me so hungry. When we come back, there's more off the Chinese menu to dig into. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio on this holiday weekend, exploring the beauty of Chinese cuisine with the author of the new Amazon editor's pick release on its way to bestseller entitled At the Chinese Table, Carolyn Phillips is here. I know that you learn from so many in the family as well, the caramelized garlic fish toward Mm -hmm. the tail end of the book uh, just intrigues me. Uh, frozen small yellow croakers and lots of garlic and green onions. Uh, this is just a glorious combination. Uh, if you have steamed bread, it's, it's so that you can just stuff up the juices. But this, I, the Chinese use of caramel in their cooking is something I think we don't realize 
very much in, here in the West, uh, huh. caramel and smoke. Yes. They use a lot of great smoked, like charcuterie or smoked chickens, mm-hmm. uh, smoked pork, um, smoked fish, and uh, caramel as a seasoning because that gives you this rich kind of like an unctuous sauce that you have with great soy sauce in there. Um, you make mm. it with rock sugar so you don't have like a bitter or sour edge after you eat. Yes. And it robes the food. Oh, and uh, the garlic in is also cooked very slowly so that it becomes mild and sweet rather than pungent. Yes, and I have a memory of ribs that were caramelized in a caramel like that in one of the arrondissements in Paris from 20-plus years ago, uh, a, wow. a travel that I remember. Yes, and the, the caramel you mentioned conjures that up. For those that don't know, croakers, which you say in the introduction of the recipe, can be found in the frozen section of Chinese supermarkets. You can substitute another small fish, right? Oh, yeah. So one of my testers actually used halibut. Ah, perfect. Um, just, uh, yeah. It's just, like, it's just a mild-flavored fish, something that's not going to really... Uh, compete with the flavor of the sauce unless you want it to. I mean, if you want a, uh, sardines or salmon or something, that's, it works as well, too. Sure, of course. Uh, what is next for you um, on the blog, in print? Uh, do you you intend to continue to share your extraordinary knowledge of, of Chinese cuisine and so many regions and um, continue to cook, I hope? Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm started up my blog again. I've rebooted it. It's uh, madamhuang.com, M-A-D-A-M-E-H-U-A-N-G. Yes. One word. Um, and uh, I put up some of the recipes. I'm working on two cookbooks now. I'm waiting to see whether they get picked up. Uh, whichever one gets picked up, then I'll start posting hmm. recipes and photos for that. So How exciting. Start trying them. How exciting. Oh, I can't wait yeah. to follow. Yes. Thank and then... You. Um, of course, everyone is always looking to see you, and as we start opening up and, and branching out as well, I know you have some talks places, um, and it would yeah. be my great delight to be able to see you uh, speak live, so I will, of course, follow. Um, the blog, where Carolyn Phillips shares her tremendous passion, is Madam Wong, and it's Madam with an E, and then H-U-A-N-G, as she mentioned. Um, you can follow on social, she is everywhere, uh, under the real Madam Wong or Madam Wong, right, Carolyn? Yeah, the real. The real. R-E-A-L. Yes. The real Madam Wong. Because there there is no other. There is no other. And of course, um, you will want to um, grab the book and begin to immerse yourself in it. It is such a beautiful read. It has uh, really lovely illustrations. There are 22 recipes. Carolyn's new release, uh, an, an Amazon editor's pick, by the way, called At the Chinese Table, is a culinary adventure like no other, and it captures the diversity of China's cuisines from the pen of a world-class scholar and gourmet, and to really read in depth about how she mastered the language and so many of China's extraordinary cuisines. It is a a glorious story, uh, and I can't wait for all of you to read it. Again, the book entitled At the Chinese Table, the new release from the award-winning writer and scholar and artist and fluent Mandarin speaker, 
Carolyn Phillips. Carolyn, what a pleasure. Um, congratulations. I, I thank you uh, for the experience and for sharing your story, for sharing your passion. Oh, it was a real joy for me. I really, really, really liked it. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. Well, at least I hope you think so. <laughs> Every weekend, I will bring you my best food finds, recipes, and comrades to share the beauty of the food world. And so I hope you'll tune in. I thank you for listening this week and let me leave you with my last bite. I like these three, four, five ingredient recipes, especially during the dog days of summer. And for the hottest days and nights, this is my new best go-to recipe. I call it a cucumber salad boat. Oh, by the way, it's for your low-carb eating friends as well, because you scoop out the seeds of a fresh cucumber, preferably a burpless or an English one. I leave the rind because I like the chew, and then I fill the inside of that cucumber boat with my favorite salad, and you get this crunchy, refreshing, lovely could be light dinner along with a chilled soup, could be a lovely lunch. Or cut them into pieces and they could make a great uh, hors d'oeuvre or appetizer. So I've done it with what I call country club chicken salad. That's uh, shredded chicken, good mayo, red grapes, and chopped pecans. You could do it BLT, bacon, lettuce, and tomato tossed in some white balsamic vinaigrette. And then if you're going for the antipasto version, I put in uh, cubed provolone, crumbled uh, salami or chopped salami and some chopped up jardiniere or pickled vegetables. Oh yes. So good. I will post my cucumber salad boats on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chef Jamie Gwen. Please follow and become a friend and a fan. And of course you'll find, uh, the recipes that I mentioned during the show, plus many more galore at chefjamie.com. The bonus recipe for my lemon icebox pie, just email me, jamie at chefjamie.com and meet me here next weekend. Until then, I hope you continue to eat well. Well.